Welcome to the Sogro Marketing Council podcast. The Sogro Marketing Council is a membership organization comprised of growing marketers who want to stay ahead of developments in multiple areas of marketing. This podcast features recordings of Sogro Marketing Council meetings. Tune in to hear expert marketers share tips and discuss the latest strategies and tools in marketing. To join the next meeting and be part of the discussion yourself, visit SoGrowPR.com. That's S-O-W-G-R-O-W-P-R.com and click on the Marketing Council tab. Let's get growing. So this is the SoGrow Marketing Council. We are a membership organization for marketers. And the idea is that we get together and we share tips once a month and everybody's in their different lane of marketing And by getting together with other marketers who have different areas of expertise in marketing, we're able to stay up to speed on all these different areas of marketing instead of just swimming in our one little lane. So especially as somebody who's in PR, which touches a lot of areas of marketing, I love to hear about graphic design and branding and sales and email marketing and all these different areas. So it just makes us better marketers. And then in addition to that, we also can help each other. So if somebody needs graphic design, they probably need SEO and they probably need social media. So we can refer business and also help people with, if they need a vendor in a particular area, we're able to get to know each other so we can confidently recommend somebody. So the way the meeting works is the presenters have four minutes to share a tip. And please keep in mind that the tips are educational and non-promotional. And it's just a way to share your expertise and we'll all get to know how great and smart and wonderful your company is. But just remember, it's not a commercial for your company and just share whatever it may be a news item from your industry. It may be some sort of tip that you've come across, um, just something that would help other marketers. And then we'll have one minute for questions after that. So we can have a little discussion. If you have a thought on somebody's tip, then after that, we can just have a quick discussion on it. And then we'll move on to the guests who can share if we have time at the end. So, um, and one thing that we like to do is we often like to take, um, let me let someone in real quick. Um, We often like to take a picture with everybody smiling because a lot of times you take a picture and then you have somebody closing their eyes and all of that. So, um, hi Robin, how are you? Hi, nice to meet you. Well, thank you for joining us. We were just doing a rundown of the meeting and just saying that um, the featured guests have four minutes to present a tip and then one minute for questions. And then guests can share if we have time after that. And then we were just about to take a screenshot with everybody smiling so that everybody looks amazing on camera. So if you guys don't mind, we're going to take just a quick screenshot. So everybody smile. Look at your camera. All right. We'll do one more. Make sure we've got everybody here. All right. One more quick one. All right. Great. Okay. And as I mentioned, the order is in the chat. So Kristen, would you like to start us out? Sure. I'd be happy to. I'm going to share my screen before I actually get started here. All right. Let me know if you can see this periodic um, elemental chart, at least my own. I'm not a scientist. So my name is Kristen Sellier and I um, founded ID8. We are a branding agency, and um, today I'm going to share about a brand audit. So a lot of times you think of an audit, you think of accounting and finance, and this isn't about accounting and finance. This is an audit, really, of what your brand looks like. Um, So there's two parts to an audit. 
there's the me, and then there's the we. So the me is the messaging, what you say about your company. And then the we is really about what your um, presence looks like. Um, so if you're going to do a brand audit, um, I would suggest um, recommending to your clients to do a brand audit once a year. And it really is just a check on the brand to identify and address problem areas with the net result of helping you turn things around and grow your bottom line. Brands are like living entities with life cycles. And just like the pandemic has happened, um, the technology has advanced five years within a one-year time span. And that means brands have had to change and adapt. And therefore, their image has also had to change. Their messages have had to change. So what the brand audit uncovers is any major pain points or problems. Two, you do a full brand analysis. Look at the logo. Is it consistent? Um, or is it looking degraded on the website? Or on does the social marketing avatar not look like your logo? Are the colors consistent across all platforms, analog and digital? Um, is there a font standard, a digital font, a print font? Um, is the website design a good representation of what the brand experience should be like? Um, so if it's easy to work with um, you or your customers say we have great customer service, does the website also deliver great customer service? I.e., is it easy to find things and get information that you need quickly? Um, looking at the messaging, looking at the brand itself, uh, culture, are we actually delivering on what we say our culture is all about. So if we say we're nice people, are we actually doing, um, uh, are we answering the phone with a, a warm body or is it a robot answering the phone? Um, brand guidelines, are there brand guidelines in place? If so, are we following the guidelines? Um, user experience, best practices, all those things should be looked at and analyzed. And then the brand audit comes up with solutions. How do we solve if there are problems or inconsistencies or, um, a degradation, a degradation of the of the brand because of you know multiple people using it. How do we solve that problem? And then a prioritization. What should, what's going to deliver the most impact the quickest? And then prioritizing usually in three phases: phase one, most important, critical; phase two, second important, and third. Hey, this one might take a little bit longer, but we still need to get it done um, to solve the problem. There's a great article, and it's from 2012. I know that sounds old, but it still is very relevant today. And um, the article actually talks about a brand audit, the best way to do it. And it talks about these three powerful rings. Do you guys see this, these three rings I'm showing to you? Okay. So one is, hey, if this is, you know, if people are more like picture, you could do this with your whole, um, the whole team. And even before you start any marketing efforts, this is a good thing to do to understand differentiators. So number one, what's your value? Uh, what do you do differently? Um, what are you delivering on do differently than competitors? Number two, what are your competitors doing? And this is the one that people don't often think about when they think about an audit. You have to look at your competitors. They've changed. Uh, there may be new competitors. There may be competitors that aren't around anymore. The competitors may have changed their service or product. So what is the value that competitors are delivering? And what is their non-value? What are they not good at doing? And then what are your customer needs? What are their unmet needs? Um, and noting that, looking at by doing customer interviews, talking to customers, maybe happy customers, sad customers, unhappy customers, customers that have left, and really determining what are your customer needs and what are their unmet needs that we could meet. And then a little and that little point in the middle, um, your points of difference is, hey, this is what sets us apart from our competitors. This is meeting our customer needs. And then this is delivering one of our differentiators. Um, uh, so that's the three circle model. Um, 
you know, it's a great process that we use when we're starting to work with clients on their brand um, because the visual is really a communication of what the brand stands for and it should deliver truth. And if it's just fictitious or looks pretty, it's not going to help them meet the goals that they have in place. Did I hit my four minutes, Sarah? Yay. Yep, you were perfect. You had like 10 seconds. So I forgot to mention that Sarah does the timer. So you'll hear her a little timer after the end. And then also make sure you say your name and your company like Kristen did. And you can say your area of expertise as well. So that's wonderful. Kristen, there are so many things. I could just go into a lot of different things. But I'm going to open it up and see, does anybody have any questions or thoughts? Because I thought that was really good. Scott? Oh, you're on mute. You would think I'd know better by now. So my, so my question is, how often do companies actually do brand audits? Because I, I hadn't really thought about doing one every year. So that was interesting to me. I mean, our clients, we're analyzing it every once a year, every year, because things change so quickly. I would say that most customers probably only look at their brand once every five years. And that's where you get into the, we're delivering this, but our brand only says this. And then you have this misalignment and these gaps in delivery and messaging and brand. Um, and if you do it more often, then it's a, a much smaller process and quicker and you can, you know, get more things done and accomplished. Absolutely. And more we, incremental changes versus a whole rebrand because that gets expensive and you lose some, some exposure because people don't really know who you are and so you're, you're doing a whole rebrand. But if you do small changes, it's still the same brand, but you're still staying on target. And a good time to do it is when you're acquiring a business or if, you're move, if your customers are moving because they're going to have to redo a lot of things at those times. And so then you're adding it in. They're already going to have to reprint, redo marketing materials. Hey, let's go ahead and make sure we're including all of these other changes at the same time. Absolutely. Kristen, are there common areas where there's misalignment? Um, usually huh, between what the, the, the client says they stand for and what the customer says they stand for. Those two are the most, to me, de departure. Because it, and it's usually around language. Uh, customers say this is what we do, and, and they're so deep in their business that they think this is the value, but their customers say something much more simple and, and not different, but in a completely different language. And so explaining that to the customer that you need to be using your customer's language, not your own. And, you know, because you're so far deep into it, I think that's the biggest aha moment most clients have. That's great. Well, thank you, Kristen. Yep. So helpful. Yana Tori, would you like to share it today? Yes, for sure. So my name is Yana Tori. I am an email and deliverability specialist, and I apparently still have a hard time saying deliverability. Um, so what I do is I ensure that people receive the emails that you all send. Uh, we have this false assumption that when we send an email and the email is valid on the other end, that it will be received, but it works just like social media. If your picture is not interesting, it will be gone from the feeds uh, sooner than you can say my name. Uh, so today I will be talking about spam filters. We have um, a lot of articles that um, when it comes to like tips and tricks for email and things like that, that will tell you things like, don't put exclamation points in your subject line. Your subject line should not be too long because you will end up in a spam filter. Uh, don't add a lot of pictures because you'll end up in the spam filter. And it is, 
a component of if your email is going to go in the inbox, the promotions tab, or uh, the spam filter is going to say no. But the main points here are obviously authentication. You need to prove your identity online. I am an email marketer. Tom has access to Flowmailer. If we wanted to pretend to be any of your businesses and send emails to random people or your own customers, we can. Anybody can. If I showed you how to do it, you would be able to do it. So authentication is a way to protect your identity and to prove to the inboxes of your subscribers or anyone you're emailing that the email is actually coming from you. Just like in the real world, identities can be stolen and can be hacked and so on. Uh, same thing with email, but this is a very important. It's a big component of if your email will land in the inbox or not. Once the authentication is done and you can prove that it's you, um, spam filters will and inboxes will create um, just like a credit score, a nice history of who you are, what you do, and how much you annoy your subscribers. You have a tendency of, um, as a consumer, being annoyed when stores ask us for emails. And when we're in the business, we're like, hmm, how can we make more money this month? Let's just send an email to everybody. And um, inboxes care about engagement just as much as social media. So if you're sending emails and no one is opening them, or you're sending emails to people who are not engaging with you because they're not customers, and I know in the United States, the, law, the, the laws for now are very lax, minus California and New York, soon to be. And all of that is going to be way more important than um, if your email is pretty, or if you have 10,000 exclamation points in your subject line. I can send an email with really pharmaceutical difficult words and then and I will know that the email will land in the, in the inbox on the other end and some businesses just assume that the statistics that they see in their email marketing is is true so when it comes to spam filters I beg you to put your consumer hat on and say hey I'm receiving all these emails I never open them what would you think Gmail would take that as a response. They would say that you don't care about these emails and they will decide for you. Now we're kind of seeing the little, do you want to unsubscribe? You have an open email. Uh, but in some cases, they just technically unsubscribe you from them. They're not unsubscribing you if the email is still in the list. But that is a way that they will know that the business sending you emails doesn't care necessarily to look at their statistics and be more strategic when it comes to email, that you're kind of blasting people, which is a, a word us email geeks hate a lot. Um, Spam filters care about what you do, how people behave, and if people unsubscribe, it is totally fine. If people complain about spam, that is a huge indicator. A spam filter is a robot, it's a computer, it is not a human. So a human action saying, I don't like this email or you're annoying me, uh, would be very bad. Um, there are a lot of tools out there. It's called a C-test. That's the, the technical term of what it is. And you can actually send a test email there and see how your email performs. And you might be surprised that Gmail does not accept your emails. Microsoft does not accept your email. Yeah, who doesn't? And what they will do is that they will uh, accept the email for people. Let's say if I engage with your brand, I will keep receiving an email, no problem. The people who don't will not get it. And at some point, you're spending resources and time, and you have fake data as well, because a spam filter will click and open an email to ensure everything is safe. To you, that looks like a click and an open. So if you're making a strategy based on that, you might end up um, with the, going down the wrong path. So just be very human about it. And the exercise I like doing is if, you, if Gmail and everybody just disappeared and we had to recreate all the spam filters, what would you do? I'm done. What would you do to recreate a spam filter? And just don't do that. It's just as easy as that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's worry. So if somebody has a client or if their company has not done the proper things in email up to this point and they have a bad reputation, 
is there a way to fix that or do you have to start over? Is there any hope there or is it something where once you're doomed, you're doomed for long term? <laughs> mm-hmm. So the, um, the way I like to explain it is like a credit score. So you have a reputation and that's literally what we all call it. It's based on the domain and the IP you're sending from. Um, a lot of bad businesses, what they're going to do is they're going to change the domain. Uh, but a new domain has no reputation, just like when you have your first credit card. Uh, and if you just transfer your 10,000 customers to this new domain that has no history, Google will prevent the email from going in just to make sure everything is fine. Um, so the best way to do this is to be very harsh and look at your, at your list. It is the easiest indicator. If you're buying a list, it's easy. What are the chances that 20 businesses or like 100 businesses in the world have the same list in 20 different industries? They know you bought a list. Uh, they can tell and they can say, oh, you don't have no consent or you don't care. You're just trying to catch customers. Um, so a list, managing your list correctly is very important. And people don't realize the impact buying lists has on their business. Because, yes, you might have more customers, but no one's getting the email. And those people that might have been your customers are also not getting them. So the best way to look at the, the, the list is the easiest way to, to fix it, to authenticate. So you can prove that the emails that you have been sending, if you do have a good reputation, are assigned to you. And the other thing is to create more segments. Uh, it doesn't have to be very complicated because I know most businesses have a very, very long email. Long emails, I mean, how many emails do you read that are you know, the size of an encyclopedia? What you can do is take each part and just separate it in four emails. So you would still put the same amount of time into creating it and send it to the people who care about those parts. When people are opening, clicking, and replying back to your email, it is a good, um, it's just like a good ping on your credit score or your domain reputation. So you can fix it. It just takes a long time. It's not a one, that one email is going to be fixed. It's a three month, six months process is uh, very important. And it's like having credit score with different banks. So Gmail cares about certain things. Microsoft cares about other things. So if you might fix your reputation with Gmail, but not with Microsoft, it's very important to either do CPAS, either, um, find somebody like me that can help you on the side uh, just so you have a clear picture that's great that's helpful anybody else have thoughts or questions for Yana Tori very cool yeah. <laughs> that's great Thank you, you mentioned um you mentioned uh let's see lengthy subject lines maybe um filtered into spam what is a lengthy What's the link? Oh, no. People believe that if you have a very long subject line, that your, your email is going to go immediately a spam. Or, for example, you put some like uh, on sale. It, it doesn't work that way. Spam filters, I mean, Google is spending billions of dollars on spam filters. If all it took is an exclamation point to make your email go to spam, they'd be doing it wrong, right? But when you read the articles, it's like, uh, you know, be very clear, be very sure to put emojis. No, it's not going to affect you. Your reputation and how people engage with your email is what's going to affect your deliverability. That's great. Thank you, Anna. Sorry, I appreciate it. Adam, did you want to share a tip? Yes, sorry. I had to scramble to unmute there real quick. Uh, yes, good morning, guys. Thanks uh, for the time. I work um, for EM Squared. We're a 20-year-old software integrating company, and I wanted to share a tip about mobile apps. Um, we get approached a lot by companies, we build mobile apps and all sorts of applications, and we get approached a lot by companies who think they need a mobile app, and then when we do some uh, digging, we turn out that there's a better solution. So my, my tip is titled, uh, So You Think You Need a Mobile App? Um, and I've got sort of three categories of info here. One is uh, market research, another is the ROI and value considerations, and the third is some of the technology trade-offs. 
And at any point, you guys can interrupt me and I'll put my info in the chat here in a minute. Um, but the, the market research you guys are probably familiar with, um, looking at is there anything like this app already on the market today? Um, and how does your idea compare to existing offerings that are out there already? And how do you plan to market this app if you spend the money to build it? Um, when we talk about um, with the client about the ROI and the value considerations, from our standpoint, a project doesn't move forward unless the value's there and the executives who write the checks can see the value. Um, so the big question is, why do you think this is necessary for your business? Um, and how much is it going to cost compared to the additional revenue that you think that it's going to achieve? Um, and exactly how do you plan to monetize this app um, once it's built? You know, it costs money to, to you know, create these things. Um, the interesting where we get into the conversation with clients is um, just about different technologies they didn't realize are out there. There's a, a, a big spectrum of things you can build up to building a full-fledged mobile app that's in the app store. Um, as you guys probably realize, um, people have to download an app from the app store. There's a big barrier to adoption because that's a big step for somebody. Um, and so the questions are, that we start with are, well, what capabilities do you, are you trying to achieve with this mobile app? You know, are you trying to enable your clients to order online? Are you trying to collect better data on the customers that you um, have in your system? Are you trying to create some sort of a rewards program for them? Um, um, oftentimes the operations people want to get real-time inventory updates or better reporting on their um, business. And there's lots of e-commerce and application capabilities that can be achieved without needing a full-fledged mobile app. Um, the fact is, you know, you don't necessarily need a mobile app to do some of these things, and a mobile app has a, a higher cost to build and potentially that challenge about driving the adoption and the downloads of the app. Um, so the question is, you know, can your challenges be solved possibly without a mobile app? Um, possibly you only need a private application that your employees can all use. Um, or combined with some nice upgrades to your website, um, adding an e-commerce portal or some live things for the external users so that you really just need them to find your website and then they can do the things you're trying to get them to do. Um, so I have a few examples and um, you know, one example is um, we've, got, we've had some clients ask about you know, setting up a, a mobile app because they want to do basic e-commerce. You can achieve a lot of capabilities on basic e-commerce using web forms, standard plugins, um, adding a shopping carts, ordering capabilities, um, and a lot of the advanced features that people think they need a mobile app for, like better integrated data capture. Um, you can render a lot of web capabilities on an iOS or Android device now and make it look seamless without forcing people to have a mobile app to use your services. So um, you can provide a lot of those similar capabilities. And that's the route that a lot of companies are, are now going is, well, until we really need a mobile app, step one is let's stand this up, let's see if it works, let's see if let's say that rewards program is as popular as we think, and then maybe we'll build the app later for our hardcore customers that we've proven this concept to. Um, and so uh, one of the, the, the pro tip ultimately is, um, to, to know what your options are and to how you plan on investing in that new technology to make sure that you'll end up getting the value that you're really looking for. 
um, you know, and I wrote down, um, you know, why is it really relevant to marketers? And forgive me, I'm reading from notes so I don't mess it up. Um, that mobile and e-commerce capabilities are really within reach for most organizations. Um, you know, and the existing budget can really dictate what's realistic. Um, and we often see big payoffs for companies who simply make smart investments in delivering their value more conveniently to their customers. Um, and a mobile app oftentimes is an idea that gets floated around the boardrooms because maybe a competitor has one, um, but it might not be doing a lot for them necessarily. Um, and so um, there's also a lot of other people in that organization besides the marketing team who might benefit from a mobile app potentially. Um, not everyone realizes that an application doesn't have to be public facing. You know, we've, um, we've seen applications that we build simply to help, let's say a team organize themselves more effectively, go to job sites more effectively, you know, uh, geolocation tools are available. You don't necessarily have to publish it to the world and then force people to download it just to be your customer. So um, we're, you know, I'm happy to answer any questions. A lot of people kick the tires on mobile apps and then decide, well, we want to do it later. It's a great idea. But right now we just really need our people to be able to order online. Um, and there's not necessarily a huge gap between having an app and not having one. It depends on what you're trying to do. So um, that's, that's the tip. I don't know how I am on time there, Sarah, but uh, I'm, you're good. I'm you're good. for questions. That's great. Any thoughts or questions for Adam? Have you guys had any clients or have you guys thought about doing a mobile app? You know, when, um, and this was maybe six years ago, seven years ago now, when I worked with an organization that did conferences, whenever they were having a new conference, they would want an app. And it was almost more like, I mean, to them, they just thought it was so cool to put everything, <clears throat> put everything in there. But, you know, Anyway, yeah, it was always like, oh, we need an app. We got to get the app. There's a bit of a cachet with that. Right. You want to say you have one, but then you might spend money on it and it doesn't do anything for you. Right, right. right. How much value was it? Right. Exactly. I think what you said about getting people to make the leap from just a website, which they might go to frequently, but then they have to put something on their phone. They have to find it. They have to download it. And then they have to find it on their phone and use it. And for a lot of people, that's an extra step. And the more steps you put in there, it can be hard to get people to make that transition too. So I think your right. point is, is well taken thinking about what can you do before an app to see if you really need an app and, you know, transition people to that. I think that's right. really helpful information. No, absolutely. Thank you. Well, thank you, Adam. We appreciate it. Hmm. All right. So um, I believe Rebecca has a tip for us today and then Scott will be next. Right. Rebecca, would you like to introduce yourself and share a tip? Yeah, thank you. I'm Rebecca Brizzi. I'm a management consultant. So a lot of the work that I do feeds into the work that a lot of you do and, and allows the business to be prepared and set you up for success. The tip I want to share today is about how marketing expands the opportunities for sales. Marketing exists to a big part of its function is facilitate sales and the ways in which that does that and primarily to move beyond selling a product to selling at three levels, selling a need, selling a store, and only then selling a product. So looking at those three levels, it is said that at any given time, out of your total addressable market, only 3% are actively looking for the thing that a business sells. And I'm using Chet Holmes uh, um, statistics here, but the idea being if a business sells red cars, 
only 3% of everybody they could capture is actively Googling where are red cars or asking friends for red cards, but uh, red cars, but it is possible to convert up to 70% of a total addressable market. So when a business is focused only on selling a product, it's, it's leaving up to 67% of its potential sales on the table. So selling the need is what comes, overcomes that. So there are a lot of people out there who have thought that they need something to get from point A to point B, but haven't thought about cars or think that red cars are silly or they don't want one, but haven't considered perhaps advantages of a car being red or actively think that they don't want a red car or a car at all, but are, their, their mind can be changed. So for a business to spend time selling a need without ever talking about themselves and their brand, putting that forward and, and expanding the need in the market and the understanding of the need is beneficial to that business. The second level is selling the store. Once the need has been explained, selling a store. When I was many years ago, now in university, I spent a summer working at Bali, which is a Swiss fashion house, and they had just redone the concept of all of their retail stores. So I got to spend quite a bit of time learning about like the impression of cedar wood and the mood of that color of the walls and learning about the fact that they were creating a mood and an experience by being in that store that a buyer would associate with the brand. The thing is every, every business has a store, even if they don't have a physical location, because every business creates an experience and it's the interaction, even if it's a freelancer, right? It's an interaction with the freelancer. It's the experience of working with them, buying from them, of the deliverable. That is a store. And so every business sells a, it has a store and needs to sell their store, sell the experience. And once a business has sold the need and has sold the store, the product is a shoo-in. Then there's the explanation of, okay, specifically, features, benefits, everything that we traditionally do when we're selling a, specific, a particular product. But if we've sold the store, we've uh, we sold a need, we are now capturing 70% of our total addressable market, which statistically is the maximum we can hope to address. And we are converting them with loyalty because they've bought into our explanation of why there is a need and why this store is the best store from which to buy this particular product. That's my tip. That is really great, Rebecca. Does anybody have any thoughts or questions on that? There's a lot of good information there. So, Rebecca, how do you help your clients think through what that need is? How do you engage them to pull it up? Because that, that's hard to do. They think they know, but yeah. they, in reality, they might not know. Yeah, and, and I think an underappreciated thing, it's very difficult for people to realize how difficult that introspection is, how difficult it is, because there's so much that we take for granted in our own business. And this really touches on what Kristen was talking about, too, of that disparity between what a business says about itself and what its clients say about it and, and its impression on the market. And so it's a lot of step outside of yourself. I, one thing in particular that I really like to do with a business is get them to talk about their business without using any of the words that define it. So if I'm talking to a business that sells red cars, can you tell me about that without using the word car, automobile, transportation, red, et cetera, um, and really challenge a business to think, okay, if I'm not in this business and I'm a consumer very far removed from my purchase, how would I be thinking about this? So doing tricks like that, I mean, it's a lot of just mental activities really to get there. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.
Great. I feel like we play in that space a lot because it's that public relations side of things where you are entering somebody's world where they're not necessarily looking for you and helping them to even understand and educate them on the front end. So, you know, like you said, they may not even be looking for a car at that point, but right. you know, they may not understand even the, the needs around a car that right. <laughs> there needs to be awareness around before they even get to the car point. So um, this touches so many different areas of marketing because even social media, because the things that are ads on social media don't attract the attention like something else that's helpful or educational. So this is really relevant all across the board in marketing. Yeah, I think Rebecca's heard me say this before, but if you are clear, concise, and compelling, you get mm -hmm. the clarity. And it is really, really hard to get to that point. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Rebecca. Thank Scott, you. do you want to jump in and introduce yourself? And sure. Yep. Good, good morning, everyone. My name is Scott Siegel, um, and I act as a fractional vice president of sales. And I know it's really hard for people to believe, but sales and marketing can get along. Right? We got to figure out how to do that. So what I want to share with you are there are five common tips that small businesses, mistakes they, they make. So let me just pull this up. So one of the things that we do within the organization I'm part of Sales Acceleration, we go out and we talk to business owners. And there are five common mistakes that we find that they make. One is, believe it or not, 63% don't have a sales training program. One of the mistakes business owners make is they think everyone needs the same training program, when in all actuality, they should customize it. The other one is that 65% don't have distinct selling ter territories. So how do you know who is doing what? How do you know who's calling on either a retailer or a vertical? And believe it or not, 65% don't have a sales quota. So if you don't have a sales quota, how do you determine what is good or bad? How do you build the right compensation model? And then 74% don't have ongoing training. So Kristen talked about doing a brand audit. You should have a training plan throughout the year. And then multiple people this morning have talked about this. 75% don't know who their comp uh, competition is. Rebecca just talked about that. Kristen just talked about that. The mistake that most people make in sales is they try to overcomplicate it. If you keep it simple and keeping it simple is doing the work, following the process, what we have found is that you will see it easily a 300% increase in hitting your quota. So that is my tip of the day. Great, thank you, Scott. So in terms of the way that the world has gone with everything being accessible to everybody online, the idea of sales territories seems to be something that would be a little bit of a challenge because I think people would see well, everybody is my customer and the customer, it doesn't matter if they're in Washington or if they're in Florida. So how does that work practically speaking in terms of, especially if it's an online business, what does, does sales territory still work in terms of geography or is it more based on a specific demographic or vertical, or can you just give us a little insight? Yeah, so I would answer that. You have to really start with your organization, what your company goal is. What do you want to be? What do you want to be when you grow up? 
and how do you be specifically targeted? If you try to be everything to everyone, you're not going to succeed. So you have to start with that corporate goal and then break it down by salesperson. So do you want inside sales and outside sales? Do you want to do it by vertical? Do you want to do it by channel? You have to do the work. If you're not targeted, you won't succeed. Absolutely, that makes sense. Any other thoughts or questions for Scott? Scott, do you find it common that, um, that businesses don't have a sales training program in place? Yes. So one of the things, so I consider myself lucky. So I was actually, I think I've been to every training class I ever did. But what happens today is what is the one thing that gets cut typically in a budget for the company? Marketing and sales training. So what's happening is a lot of the salespeople today aren't getting trained. And I'll give you one example. How do you prepare for a meeting? How many times have you been in a meeting and someone has said the wrong thing at the wrong time? And Stephanie, you could have been working on that account for a year, but you didn't have a pre-planning meeting. Those little things like that make a big difference. So Sarah, no, uh, sales reps today are not being trained the way they were 10, 15 years ago. And it's funny because I think people think that sales is just something that you develop on the job training. But back in college, I worked for the Center for Professional Selling at Kennesaw State University, and they have a program where you can major in sales. Yeah. And it is so valuable. But people just assume that sales is just this thing that either you have it or you don't. And they don't understand that this is a skill that you develop and that you were trained in and that you refine over time. But, you know, it certainly is something that does require training. It does. Well, that's great. Wonderful, Scott. Well, thank you for sharing. Sarah, did you want to share anything today? <laughs> yes, I'd love to. Um, my name is Sarah Stewart. I work with Stephanie at Sogo PR. I'm our social media expert, and I wear a lot of different hats as well. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some tips and tricks using LinkedIn for um, marketing and networking and employee engagement. So I'm going to share my screen. All right, um, and I'm going to come here. All right, so LinkedIn added in February a couple of new capabilities that are pretty in interesting on how businesses manage their company pages. So what they did is they made it, um, you know, with LinkedIn so much, so often with company pages, they can be a, a bit dormant because the only, the only people that see those company updates are the people that have liked or followed those pages. They see it in their feed. So when you're trying to get a company page going, typically you'll get the employees of the company to like the page and at least they'll be seeing the updates. And then, you know, you try and invite people to like the page, you know, that type of stuff to get it going. But it's been a difficult task because, you know, getting the companies to like the page and then share and go back and share everything can be, you know, kind of like pulling teeth. But LinkedIn added this capability where all um, you can create content, the people that are the admins of the company page, you can create content that only the employees can see, and then they can share the content. They get notifications that this content is available in this bank, and then the employees can go on there and share it. So it's really 
in terms of promoting your LinkedIn page and your company and even your brand, it's really an incredible opportunity and very well organized. So here you've got, this is a company that we work with. And if you were an employee, you would come here and there would be a section that would say content. And when you look under con content, it says recommend to employees and the employees would look and they would have stories here. So they could see things that they could share. Then you could pick, like there could be, you know, multiple, multiple stories and you start a post and you can share a post. So it's just a really cool way that, you know, companies can extend their engaging their employees, their employees are engaging with each other. And then they're also sharing this content, which is very cool. Um, <clears throat> another cool feature on this page is it can even LinkedIn's algorithm can give you content suggestions. So you can be advertising your own brand and your company and things like that, you know, blog posts or, you know, articles or media hits, but you can also look up content suggestions and use these to create articles that would be, you know, related to your company or the type of information that you would want your company to, your employees to share. So this is really cool just for, you know, content creators and things like that to come up with content. Um, also, of course, LinkedIn is really wonderful about its analytics. So it's very easy to gather the information about how far this data has gone and how far, you know, the reach for the share of the stories that have, you know, been shared. You can always come back and look at these. So um, another cool thing is you can also bring up competitors. Where's that page? Let's see. Well, you can also look up your competitors and I believe it was I found it earlier. I'll have to look and I'll send it to you guys again, but there's there's another page under company page where you can look up maybe it was followers follower highlights. Oh, here it is. Companies to track. So, under followers under analytics, you can look up competitors in your industry and you can see, you know, how many followers do they have? How many new followers? What are they doing? And then you can go to those company pages and see what type of content are they sharing? You know, what would be the best way for us to be, you know, competing with them? So my time is up. <laughs> that is great, Sarah. That is really helpful information. Does anybody yeah. else have any thoughts or questions for Sarah? Kristen? I have a question about that because at least I've heard in the past um, that company pages are not as important as people pages. So how do you get people to follow company pages and get people engaged with, you know, smaller, un well, unknown brands? Absolutely. Well, that is what this whole new, you know, content creation, you know, <clears throat> technology is about is that the company pages have really been on the back end and people's profiles are noticed so much more and companies have really struggled where they create this page, but nobody ever sees it. And so you really, I mean, you're just building, you know, and it's just so difficult to get followers and things like that. So this hopefully they're going to build on the employees followers, the people's followers to get people coming back to that company page. So you're right, it has been difficult and this is definitely aimed at fixing that problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Part of it could be creating 
something that really is more educational and not just company updates, <coughs> news stories. But for instance, we're doing some content that is geared specifically towards brand managers because that's the person that makes the decisions for one of our clients. And so we're doing a whole campaign where it's information that would be relevant to brand managers and not just company updates. So it almost becomes like a community page. So that's one way that you can help to get a little more engagement on your company, especially for the small businesses. What is your feeling on the paid um, advertisements using your company? Right. I mean, they're definitely, you're going to get more views. They're definitely super useful. Um, part of me, like I, the journalist part of me hates it because I feel like, why should I have to pay for something that, you know, it's just another business then. But I definitely think if you're doing an event or something that's a big deal, it's worth throwing some money at that the same way you would <clears throat> throw money for an ad or something like that, but that you shouldn't, you know, it, it shouldn't necessarily be required. But if you're, you know, doing something special where you really need extra eyeballs, it would be a worthy investment. Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, Tom and Robin, I know you all are coming as guests today. I just want to throw it out there. Do you all have a tip you want to share today or do you guys want to, to pass? It's totally fine either way. I just didn't want to let the opportunity go if you had something. Um, I don't mind speaking. I don't know if I'm doing it right. <laughs> no right or wrong. It's fine. <laughs> um, well, in the, in the wake of um, COVID-19, I work in events. I own Globally Ventures, and my specialty is incentive travel. Um, so my tip would be bringing back incentive travel and why it's important. Um, the, the biggest reason being is that your marketing starts internally if your sales forces are not buying into what you are trying to sell, then your company is not gonna be successful. So marketing does begin with your sales force um, or with your dealers. So we tend to do two different types of incentive trips and that's dealer incentives and sales incentives. Um, I have, and I, excuse me, cause I have some background noise here. Um, I have a top five reasons why incentive travel is important to your company um, versus a cash gift or a um, or any other type of gift. Um, the number one reason really is that they're memorable. If an employee or a dealer earns cash that goes towards bills or things that you know they don't remember how they spent it. Whereas when you go on an incentive trip, you have photos and memories in a destination or a hotel that you may not have gone to before. Um, it promotes sharing among employees and dealers. So while your company is investing in this trip, you're also um, promoting team building and um, idea sharing among employees that may not have had that opportunity before. And being in a destination and being in a relaxed atmosphere tends to get those creative juices going and people feel more comfortable sharing. Um, number three is, and this is really important, it's FaceTime with the executives. So most times your sales force and your dealers do not have that FaceTime with their executives. They are maybe, you know, with their immediate bosses or they're on the road, they're road warriors. But when the CEO is personally interacting with the attendees of this trip, and with their spouses, it gives more of a feeling of camaraderie and feeling valued within the company. Um, 
Number four is people, I mean, this is a given, they work harder for an incentive trip. Um, when they have that dangling in front of them and the marketing is done correctly internally, um, the excitement builds and they really do want to earn that trip. It's one thing that they can earn at the end of the year. And the last thing, and this is something that a lot of companies don't think about, is that sales forces and dealers work very hard. They're often not home. They're often, you know, traveling or out entertaining their clients. And incentive trips bring in the spouse support. So it makes it worth it at the end because they're able to bring that spouse on this trip and they want their spouse to earn the trip. So they kind of understand these extra dinner meetings and travel and whatnot. So that's that's my tip for the day. That's great. Thanks, Robin. Any thoughts or questions for Robin? Kristen? Question. Like a travel agent, do you have, get special pricing on travel, like uh, airlines and hotels, and do you have those special uh, relationships with those vendors? Yes, absolutely. So I, um, I'm involved in, well, first of all, my company acts as a travel agency as well. So we're unique in that we offer leisure travel and corporate group travel. So we, we have a broader um, group of suppliers that we work with and more knowledge as to the individual hotels that maybe some other companies like ours do because they're working with, you know, one-offs and they're working for six months on one hotel, whereas I'm working with all the hotels. But relationships with sales forces, for sure, group um, zone fairs and group tickets and stuff we do have access to as well. Um, and I'm involved in lots of different organizations. So I'm constantly um, socially involved with the sales forces for the different hotel groups and different consolidators that are there to help me to get the best pricing. Plus, you know, knowing what we should pay and what we shouldn't. That's great. Thank you, Robin. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, Tom, did you want to just at least introduce yourself? And like I said, if you have a tip, you can share it. If not, we just would love to at least hear your name and your company. Yeah, sure. Um, I did a prepared tip because, well, I got invited yesterday, so didn't really have the time to prepare anything. Um, but sure, I can introduce myself. I'm a marketer, or as we say, as we say in the Netherlands, marketeer, and Yonatori always laughs at me for that, but um marketer for you guys. Um, and I do this for Flowmailer, which is an email infrastructure provider. Infra uh, well, we'll have to do with infrastructure. Just the same difficulty with pronunciation as deliverability, because, well, just hard, email is hard. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing marketing for them and um, pretty much everything related to marketing. So yeah. That's great, Tom. We're glad you could join us today. I know it was a last-minute invite, so I was excited to see that you were able to come. Happy to be here. Are you in a glass room? Um, well, yeah, technically, yeah. Okay, all right. I'm curious. <laughs> it's, a, it's a meeting room in our office. That's it's, cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Right, wonderful. Well, I'm going to do just a quick tip and then we'll wrap up for the day and let you all get back to your projects for the day. But my tip today is about how to be the only choice instead of one of many. So it is really easy to get into a situation where you or this could be this could apply to your clients where you are, let's say, a chocolate in a bowl of chocolates. 
and you think, oh, well, we have a candy coating or we have almonds or we have all these great benefits and features, but at the end of the day, you're just one choice of many. It's very difficult for people to see the difference and they just lump all of those things together and now consumers have to sift through and decide, well, what do they really want? And if you're a smaller company or a startup company, it may be hard for you to stand out in that environment. So one way that you can gain visibility is to get outside of the places that your competitors play. And there are a couple of different ways that you can do that. And one way is that you show up in places where your potential customers are looking for information that's not necessarily related to your particular industry or your product. So one example of that might be, so for instance, as a public relations professional, instead of just writing for marketing publications, we might write for a specific vertical. So let's say a publication called Plastics Today that doesn't cover PR on a regular basis but we could write something that would show up in that publication about that industry and about how public relations impacts that industry. So think instead of swimming in your product lane, think of the verticals that you might want to target and try to get in those publications that don't necessarily cover your product or service frequently. And then you show up and your competitors aren't there. And so you become this only voice or this only choice instead of one of many. Another thing is to tie your brand to a bigger cause or a bigger narrative that you can talk about that will help you pop up in different places instead of just the places where your competitors are playing. So one example of that might be, we worked with a company that did email marketing technology. And so pretty competitive field, but we changed the narrative and talked a lot more about data privacy, which opens up a lot of conversations in general business publications in publications for executives and publications in a lot of different areas, even specific verticals like privacy in the financial world, privacy in healthcare, different topics like that. We're able to speak about email marketing and data privacy in these publications that don't usually cover email. So that's another way to get out. And then another thing is to just pick a market that is often ignored by your competitors and really get specific with that market. So we have a client that offers coaching services in a particular vertical. And so we brainstormed and worked with them and strategized and have narrowed their focus to work with executives in that vertical that are five to 10 years from retirement. And so now all of a sudden we're popping up in publications about succession planning and about retirement and about all of these topics that are not just about coaching anymore. And we're able to get really targeted with that. So thinking of those markets that your competitors are not necessarily thinking about can really help separate you as well. So instead of playing and just being one choice among many, think of the different areas where you can get outside of that and maybe get in a different vertical or different audience and hopefully you'll become the only choice among um, other, other topics that are related to your business, but can, can help you reach those people that you're really looking to reach. So wonderful. Well, it is almost time to close. Any other closing thoughts or questions that anybody has about the meeting? I have a question for you, Stephanie, related to getting published in these publications. Do you have any tips for how to actually get published in one of these uh, journals or magazines if you have content and you just don't know how to get it in there? 
Absolutely. The best thing is to just do educational content. If it has any element of salesy marketing language in there, it will not get accepted. But if you can provide something that the way I tell people is to think about what is their customer's pain point or problem, or what do you just want to go to them and say, stop doing it this way. There's, this is, this is a better, a better way to look at things or a better solution. And then write an educational article focused on that. The editors love that kind of content. And then it's just a matter of sending the editor an email and presenting that story and asking them if it would be something they would be interested in. But really focusing on educational content that's not salesy is really the ticket for getting media coverage. And then how do you, how do you get the uh, email address for the editor? That's a great question. So we pay for a database so we can look up contact information for editors of all publications. But it's really actually not that hard to find. If you go online, you can often find, it's called a masthead, or sometimes it's under their contact page on the publication. And most email addresses are listed there. You can also just call and ask the person at the desk. And a lot of times they will even give you their email. Or you can guess the email and do a Google search with quotes. And that comes up a lot as well. Okay, thank you. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you all so much for joining today. And, you know, let's continue the networking. If you guys would like to join the Sogro Marketing Council, you can log on to sogropr.com backslash marketing council, and you can become a member and set up your profile there. And then you can interact with the other marketers on that as well. And then featured experts, please post your tips in the forum. We have a marketing forum where the featured experts post their tips. There's a lot of different information. And then this is also a podcast and video series as well. So we'll put this episode on the podcast. And the best tips are always included in the podcast. And then we have the full videos available for members. So if you want to download your tip and promote it on your page, you're welcome to do that. Um, like I say, just sign up as a member and then you can have access to those videos as well. So thank you all so much for coming. Please come to our June meeting, sign up early, and we look forward to seeing you guys next month. Thank you for listening to the SoGrow Marketing Council podcast. Want to be part of our next meeting? Visit SoGrowPR.com. That's S-O-W-G-R-O-W-P-R.com. And click on the Marketing Council tab to sign up for our next event. Until next time, keep growing.